Well, good morning, church family. It is always an honor to come together and worship and continue in worship through our study in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one somewhere near you, or we'll have the words um, up on the wall behind me. But we're in week two of a four-week series uh, kind of halfway through the, the study of the book of Acts where we're, we're talking about and looking at what it means to live a life on purpose. And if you were with us last week when Jay uh, kicked off our, our series and talked about the life of Stephen and we saw that the, <clears throat> excuse me, the, the opposition and the persecution of the early church, um, it, it really kind of hit a crescendo and we, we, we met Stephen the first Christian martyr, and we looked at the parallels and similarities between his life and Jesus's life, and 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 we also met last week um, a, a kind of a, an antagonist that will become our protagonist as the book progresses in the Man of Saul, and we saw that he was ravaging the church, but we're encouraged that God's plans are not hindered; that God uses opposition, He uses hardship to continue to grow his church, to continue to accomplish his will. And I'm, I'm really excited for these next few weeks as we, we look at what it means to live a life on purpose. And by that, um, by that title, what we're, what we're talking about is it's not just living a life on purpose or on mission. Yes, that's absolutely what we saw in Stephen's life, that he was intentional. He was, he was quick to pivot to the gospel to take basically the Old Testament pillars of faith and share the gospel, but, but also what it means to live a life of intentionality, live a life on purpose to not just be reactionary, but rather be purposeful with each and every day that the Lord has gifted us with. And so this morning we're going to study the life of Philip. We're going to look at, um, Acts chapter eight, starting in verse four. We're picking up where we ended last week. Saul has, he's, he's, it says ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging people off to prison. And our story picks up in verse four. It says, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in the city. As we start studying the, the life of Philip, we, if you remember a few weeks ago, we, we first met Philip as a deacon. He has been appointed to wait tables, to serve, to care for people, to make sure people are being fed and not forgotten. And this morning we see him now, um, as the church is being scattered, Philip heads to Samaria. And one of the things I always want to call us back to when we come under the authority of God's word and we enter into stories like this morning is to not just read this as words on a page, but remember that these are real people, that the church is being scattered, that there is persecution and people are being forced from their homes. They're being forced from their comfort zone. And they're having to flee for loving Jesus. This is a real problem 
for the church. This is a real potential hindrance to the church. Yet what we see in verse 4 is that as they're being scattered, what do they do? They preach the word. That that living a life on purpose is pursued through the hardship. That's your first fill in the blank there. That in the midst of hard things, God's purposes go forward. God's people continue to live on purpose. And we see in Philip's story that as he's being scattered and sent out of, of Jerusalem because of opposition, he puts his eyes on Samaria which I think is significant for for us to understand that Samaria would have been a place where Jews and and the religious people in Jerusalem would have chosen not to go. If you're familiar with uh, the Gospel of John and Jesus' account with the woman at the well, he goes through Samaria and meets a woman at a well, and it rocks the disciples' faces off. They don't know how to handle the fact that Jesus would take them into Samaria and then talk to a woman. Because the Samaritans were viewed as less than. They were viewed commonly more as half-breeds. Because during one of the Old Testament exiles, the, the Jews that remained in Jerusalem intermarried with Canaanites. And so they were unclean. They were no longer set apart. They were no longer, from a Jewish perspective, viewed of as God's people. And so there was extreme prejudice against Samaria. Yet Philip chooses... To go to Samaria, led by the Spirit. And it says that he proclaimed to them Christ. And then all throughout our story in the book of Acts, we've reached kind of these summary statements where after opposition, it's like, okay, well now what's going to happen? And Luke, the author of our book, tells us that God's purposes and plans continue, even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of persecution. And we reach another one here in verse 6. We see that the crowd pays attention to Philip. And people are being freed, people are being healed, people are experiencing hope and life in the gospel because Philip and the believers who are scattered are living a life on purpose. They're living a life on mission. And our mission was given to us way back in Acts chapter 1. Jesus' parting words to his disciples is to go and be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. And that's where Philip goes in response and in obedience to the commands of Christ. And we are the ends of the earth that Jesus is talking about. And there's still more to do. So we have that that same charge, that same calling, that same mission and purpose is placed on us today. And what has hit me throughout the book of Acts is that it's our turn. It's our turn to live a life on purpose. And one of the ways we live a life on mission One of the ways we live life intentionally is realizing that we have a sovereign God who uses hardship, who uses trials and struggles. If we go way back to the beginning of God's story in the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Joseph. And if you're familiar with Joseph's story, Joseph is kind of arrogant. He's, he's, he kind of, um, holds some dreams and things over his brother's head and kind of gloats and, and gets himself into some trouble to where his brothers have decided they're going to kill him. And they take him out into the middle of nowhere and they're getting ready to murder their brother when they see a band of slave traders come by and they decide, you know what? It would be better to sell him than kill him because at least then we'd have some coin in his pocket. He'd end up dead anyway. Let's do that. And the rest of Joseph's story is this roller coaster where God's hand is on him and protecting him, but there's extreme trial and extreme success. 
And he finds himself towards the end of Genesis, essentially the number two in charge of Egypt. God has given him insight into dreams and he has protected Egypt from a famine. And Joseph is now in charge of distributing food to the world. And who shows up at his doorstep? But his brothers. Not expecting to see their brother that they sold basically into death. They show up asking for food. And Joseph, because again, they're not expecting their brother to be like the king of Egypt. They don't recognize him. And after playing a few games and messing with him, because he's their brother, that's what you do with brothers. In Genesis 50 verse 20, he reveals himself. He makes it known that, that he is their brother that they sold into slavery. And he says this, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All throughout God's story, he uses hardship and trials to accomplish his purpose. A little background into our story, my family's story. We, we moved to Loveland five years ago uh, on Wednesday, actually. It'll be five years we've lived in Loveland. And we moved here with a different organization to start a church. That's what God called us here to do. And we spent two years working and laboring in a really tough season of ministry. And it was really hard. And after two years of laboring by God's grace, he shut that church down. And my heart was broken. I felt I was, I was in probably one of the darkest spiritual seasons of my adult life. And I found myself questioning God. I found myself not questioning whether God was real, not questioning whether Jesus was Lord, not questioning the gospel, but questioning if I needed all of you, if I'm being totally honest, if I needed the church in my life, or with technology being what it is, could I just podcast the guys that I agree with and read my Bible and be okay? And the Lord was quick to convict And quick to take those hardships, that hard season, and go to work in my life to grow my faith. And show me that that is not an okay place to stay. That hard things happen in our life. And what's really cool to me is that five years ago, God called us from the southeast out to Colorado. All I knew about Colorado was I kind of liked the Broncos and people smoked pot. That's all I knew. (laughs) And we moved here sight unseen. We rented a house. We're like, we'll give it a try. If everybody's dirty hippies, we're going to go back. We're going to go back to where it's comfortable. And we fell in love with this city. And I tell people all the time, I feel like it took me 30 years to get home. And we love it here. And God, when we were praying about moving to Colorado, the word that I really feel like we got from the Lord was that he was going to ask us to step off a cliff and trust that he would give us wings to fly. That what we were doing was bigger than us. And for two years, we toiled and struggled, and it seemed like the opposition was going to win. And God was growing us and positioning us, and he has been faithful. I feel like for the past three years, being a part of Redemption Church, God has been giving us wings. We have been flying because as our church was shutting down, Redemption was getting started. And when my heart needed it the most, Jason and Matt Brown, our lead pastor, who he's away on sabbatical over the summer, and they're at a family camp this week, just an update on them. They're doing awesome. They're just being refreshed and encouraged, and God's just doing stuff. We're, we miss them like crazy, but it's so cool to hear what God is doing in their lives. And so 
Um, and then Matt Moorhead, one of our pastors that now is in North Carolina, they were pastors for my heart when I needed it. And God has been faithful through the hardship. God's purposes and plans were accomplished. And it's not because I was awesome. And as I look back, I go, man, if we hadn't had those two years of hard, I think my pride would have taken over. I think I would have been like, man, I was a genius to move to Colorado and I'm a church planting savant. Like, but no, I look back and go, God, it's by your grace. It's because your purposes are bigger than me. Your purposes are bigger than the hardship. And we just want to live a life on purpose. We want to be obedient to what you've called us to, to be your witnesses. And that's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 8 in the beginning is that in the midst of hardship, they continue to pursue purpose. As they're scattered, they preach the word. They make Jesus known. And the result then in verse 8 is there's much joy. There's much joy and hope in this city that has been viewed as less than. In this city that has been viewed as half-breeds. There is much joy as they encounter the gospel and their lives are transformed. And so Philip's story starts with him living on purpose, with intentionality, going to Samaria, a place where there was already a belief in the Old Testament God. There was always already a belief in the Old Testament. They had a version of the Torah. They, they viewed themselves as God's people. And so as they're being sent out and scattered from Jerusalem, he goes to a place where there's a cultural understanding of what God is. And he starts proclaiming the gospel. And there's much joy. But then we see opposition as again has been kind of the normal rhythm of the book of Acts is is after these summary statements where we see God is doing great things through the power and presence of the gospel and his spirit. We run into some hardship. Uh, verses 9 through 14 give us a little bit of insight into this guy. We meet this, this, this guy named Simon, who's a magician. It says he had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. Pay attention to that word, paid attention, or those words, because they're paying attention to Philip, and they had been paying attention to Simon. From the least to the greatest, everybody was captivated by this guy. Saying this man is the power of God that is called great. Can we just agree that's strong language to talk about somebody? This man is the power of God that is called great. They looked at Simon as if he was a deity. This magician had power and prominence and influence in this city. And it says they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus, he lived on purpose. They were baptized, both men and women. People are responding to the power of the gospel. And even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. At first glance, it looks like, man, revival is breaking out. And that is true. There is, God is doing stuff in Samaria. People are coming to faith. They're responding to the gospel. Even Simon, so it would seem, is following and believing 
Yet we're going to see, if we remember back to like Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira, and at times in the life of the early church and in our church today, there is a time where we need to protect the purpose of the church. That we need to make sure that we stand rooted on the word of God and the gospel and we do not stray. And that's where our story is going to take us as we're seeing this man of influence start now following Philip. This man who's famous in the city is wanting to be like Philip because he recognizes, I believe, that his power and his influence are in danger. And he doesn't want to lose his fame and his position. And so seeing that people are paying attention to Philip like they had followed him, he starts trying to learn tricks of the trade. And we pick up in verse 14. It says, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they'd only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on their hands on them and they received the spirit. Let's just stop there because we need to talk for a second because things just got weird. Throughout the book of Acts, we have seen the Holy Spirit fall on people and indwell people. And Jesus promises that when he goes, he will send us a helper, a comforter who will live inside of us, that God himself now is a part of us. And we've seen throughout the book of Acts that it usually is coupled with people are baptized and they receive the Holy Spirit. In, in, in other places in the book of Acts, they receive the Holy Spirit and then they're baptized. Here we get this account where the apostles hear what's going on in Samaria. And I don't think what's happening is it's like the mother church has to come check up on what's going on. I think the apostles hear that God is doing something in Samaria and they want to be a part of it. They don't want to miss out on what God is doing. And so they send Peter and John into this land that had been rejected, had been omitted from the household of faith. They, they had turned their backs on Samaria and now they hear that revival is breaking out. And so Peter and John head into town, and I think in God's wisdom and in God's plan, he withholds his Holy Spirit until the apostles get there, not because of the Samaritans, but because of the disciples, because of the apostles, because of the religious prejudice towards the Samaritans. And so I think what's happening here is is more for the benefit of Peter and John and the church to really understand the purpose of God, that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth, even the people that they don't think deserve it, even the people that they don't think should be allowed in. God is at work. And so the apostles get there, they recognize that they don't have the Holy Spirit, they lay hands on them, and just like the Holy Spirit falls on the believers in Jerusalem, he falls on the believers in Samaria. And God gets to blow up the box of the apostles and prove, I am in control. My gospel is for all. Live a life on mission. Take this to the ends of the earth. Remember my command. Go and be my witnesses. I think what's happening here is for the benefit of the apostles, not because of some inadequacy in the Samaritans. They believed in the gospel. They trusted in Jesus. They were responding in faith. I think the apostles needed to see this happen so that their faith could be grown. Yet now we get a little bit of a plot twist. 
as we're going to see them protect the purpose in unity um, through Peter and his words. It says in verse 18, when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. For your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, and this is just heartbreaking to me, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come on me. Your second fill in the blank, we see that in Philip's life that the purpose of the church is protected in unity. That Peter stands up and is often the case. He tends to be the vocal leader of the apostles. And when Simon says, I want some of what you have, how much is it going to cost me to have your power? I want people to have that. What's it going to cost me? Peter calls him out. Peter calls him out. And in a way, I think he's calling him out in a warning to the believers who would have, again, these are Samaritans who believed in the Torah. They believed in the Old Testament. So they would have known it because where he says, um, for I see that you are in the gall of bitterness or the root of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Those are, those are lines pulled out of Deuteronomy and Isaiah. And in Deuteronomy 29, where he's quoting this gall of bitterness, this root of bitterness, that is a line. Here we go. Beware lest there be among you any man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the God of nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. That is the same language as, as Peter is using here. He's warning them that if you're not careful, if we don't protect the purpose of the church to go and be Jesus's witnesses to the ends of the earth, to live a life of intentionality, roots of bitterness can spring up within the household of faith. We need to protect the purpose of the church. That's why we stand. We don't move on from the gospel. We stand firmly on the gospel. We, we set up guardrails that protect our hearts and our lives by daily preaching the gospel to ourselves Recently, the Lord was just doing some stuff in my heart and um, kind of walking me through some some just brokenness in my own life. And um, and I really felt the need to press into Jesus's death and resurrection. And so I spent about a week just reading and rereading the different accounts of Jesus's laying down of his life and then picking it back up. And it was so encouraging and worshipful for my heart. And I was just reminded, like, I think the temptation in Christian culture is to like, Oh, I got the gospel. I'm going to move on to other things. No, no, we protect our hearts. We keep ourselves grafted to Christ by daily preaching the gospel to ourselves that we were sinners. We were dead in our sin and we desperately needed Jesus. And when we needed him the most, he came and laid his life down. That protects the church. And we see here that the church is in danger, that the believers, there's this guy, Simon, who who wants God's stuff but he doesn't really want God. We know that because Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this. Your heart is not right before God. He's calling him out, but he calls him to repent. 
And then the bond of iniquity that he talks about is out of Isaiah. And that's a really interesting passage in the, in the book of Isaiah because it's dealing with fasting. And Isaiah being the prophet and mouth, mouthpiece for God is instructing the people that if you want to fast appropriately and worship God and fasting is, is taking things that are either necessary or near and dear to you and laying them down to pursue God deeper and more intentionally. Isaiah in, in, um, in Isaiah 58, he, he says that God is the one that looses the bonds, loosens the bonds of wickedness and undoes the straps of the yoke to let the oppressed go free. That when you lay down the things that you value and you press into the Lord, God saves you from your iniquity. He is the one who takes the yoke off of you, who sets your hearts free and gets rid of the, these bonds that hold our hearts back. And so here in a warning to Simon, Peter is saying, you need Jesus. He's the one who's going to free you. You need to lay, you desire fame, you desire power, you desire money. You want to remain a person of influence here in this city. You need to lay that down and repent and press into Jesus. And that's what makes Simon's response so heartbreaking to me is Peter is calling him to respond and Simon's response is, will you just pray for me that this stuff doesn't happen? And we're not given a whole lot more insight into what happens, but it sounds an awful lot to me like the rich young ruler who turns and walks away when confronted by Jesus. And then we reach another summary statement. It says, this is speaking of Peter and John, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. They now return to Jerusalem and along the way, they're living on purpose. They're giving the gospel away throughout the cities and the towns that they, they encounter along the way. And then finally, our story, looking at Philip's life, we get this account of Philip and an Ethiopian eunuch. And the story is basically, Philip is enjoying a season of success in ministry. He's preaching the word. People are coming to faith. The church is being protected. People are being healed. And an angel of the Lord shows up and says, leave, go out on a desert road and take a walk. And what I love, if we look at verse 27, it says, he rose and went. In the midst of a successful season of ministry where lives are being changed, God calls Philip to walk away into a desert place and what Luke tells us is he goes. He just responds in obedience and he starts heading down this desert road. And along the way, he encounters an Ethiopian eunuch treasurer. In Jewish culture, that's strike one, strike two, strike three, you're out. He's a foreigner. He's a eunuch, which I'm not going to get into what that is, but ouch. And it makes him unclean forever. And then he's a treasurer, which they would have associated with that of like a tax collector. Anybody who handled money, you can't trust them. And so God calls Philip to live a life on purpose out of successful ministry and down a road to a guy that they would not have wanted to associate with. Ethiopia was viewed as the ends of the earth. So again, our passage this morning is living a life on mission to the ends of the earth. And we see God call Philip to that. And it says that um, in verse 29 
uh, I'm sorry, verse 28, it says, and was, he was returning from worshiping in Jerusalem in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Philip is embracing the mission of God and living a life on purpose. And he has enough margin in his life to sense the spirit, to hear the spirit say, go over to this chariot. I have to confess far too often. I think I jam pack my life full of stuff that I don't know if I can hear the spirit because I'm so busy with other things. And there's so much noise that sometimes I think God needs to lead us out into the desert place so we can learn to hear his voice. And Philip has a sensitivity to the spirit. And then when he's told, go over and join this chariot, verse 30, it says, so Philip ran. Again, I love just the sold out obedience in Philip's story. Doesn't say he walks. It doesn't say he, he gets there when he gets there. No, he sprints. He ran to him and he hears him reading. He hears him reading Isaiah, the prophet. And then he asks him a really simple question, doesn't he? It's not this deep theological question. It's not, hey, are you pre-mill or a-mill or post-mill or, you know, where do you stand on Calvinism versus... No, it's, do you know what you're reading? He enters into where the man is at and engages him. And I believe this man is spiritually hungry. Again, he would have not been allowed to go to Jerusalem and, and enter into the courts. He's unclean and an outsider, but he wants more of God. He's gone to Jerusalem and he's on his way back. He's reading Isaiah. He wants to understand. He's spiritually hungry and God leads Philip right to him. I believe this morning that there are people God is leading you to. That God has placed in your life for a purpose. And he wants you to live on purpose with intentionality in those relationships. And you don't have to be a scholar. You don't have to be a deep theologian. You just have to be engaged with the people around you. Ask good questions. Allow the spirit to lead. Embrace the mission that you are a missionary. Wherever you work, shop, eat, play, God has placed you there on purpose, for purpose, to make Jesus known. And I love, I love the Ethiopian guy's response. He says, how can I... How can I? He's, he's asked, how do, you, do you understand what you're reading? He says, how can I unless someone guides me? Who in your life needs guidance? Who does God have in your life that you could be a spiritual mentor to? And here's, here's the cool thing. As I asked that question, if a name or a face popped into your mind, here's how awesome God is. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. That person that comes to your heart and to your mind, that's God telling you who you're to go after. They've, they've been placed in your life for a reason. And, I, and he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And that's exactly what Philip does. The book that, that follows the book of Acts in, in your Bible is the book of Romans written by Paul, which we met him last week. Saul will look deeper into his life and the conversion and the radical experience that the Holy Spirit does in his life next week. But Paul writes the book of Romans. And in Romans 10, he says, how then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? As it is written, how beautiful 
are the feet of those who preach the good news. Paul writes that to a church. He doesn't write that just to pastors. That's to all of us. We are called to go and give away the gospel. To live a life on purpose. To be used wherever you workshop, eat, or play. And not coincidentally, the Ethiopian man is reading from the the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is commonly referred to as the fifth gospel. Because when you study the book of Isaiah, I just looked very quickly this week and found 25 prophecies about Jesus's birth, life, and death. And that was just a, a quick look. You read the book of Isaiah with the gift of illumination by the Holy Spirit and the gift of hindsight, and it reads like Jesus's story, because it is. And just coincidentally, right, this man is reading from the passage of Isaiah that says, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life is taken away from the earth. We read that and we're like, man, that sounds an awful lot like Jesus. Jesus was led to his, his death. He stood silent when accused, he was humiliated and mocked and scorned. He was denied justice. They falsely brought claims against him. This reads a lot like Jesus. We understand that, but yet this man in the story is confused. And he asks Philip in verse 34, whom I ask is the prophet speaking of? Is he talking about himself or about someone else? Verse 35, this is our responsibility. Open your mouth. Don't sit silent. Open your mouth and beginning with the scripture, he shared with him the good news of Jesus. He didn't shy away. He didn't, he just used where the man was at and pivoted to the gospel. That is what God calls us to. If you are in Christ this morning, your life on purpose looks like Philip's to live a life that takes where people are at and you just point them to Jesus. It's not about you. Philip's story, the awesome thing about Philip's story, it's not about Philip. It's about Christ. He points people to Jesus. And that's and it says, as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? He is responding to the gospel. And the natural response to the gospel, that when the spirit illuminates, the spirit regenerates and awakens your heart, is you just want to be obedient. And one of the ways you do that is to put on display what God is doing in your life through baptism. The word that is being used here is is the word baptizo, which is a fully submersion all the way under the water. You're buried with Christ and you're raised to newness of life. That is always what we see in the New Testament. That's what happens here. And in a few weeks, at the end of July, we're going to celebrate that at Fairgrounds Park as a church. We're going to get into the river and we're going to dunk some people that God is doing stuff in their life. And if you want to know more, come talk to me afterwards. Come talk to Jason. Um, We would love to have a conversation and and participate in this with you. But if you're paying attention in your Bibles, it goes from verse 36 to verse 38. Your Bible probably doesn't have a verse 37. Verse 37, it's in my Bible, it's at the very bottom. It says, if you, um, because the man asked, what prevents me from being baptized? 
says, if you believe with your heart, you may. And he replied, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. In all of the original manuscripts that we have, that verse is omitted. And so it's believed that that was added later on to protect the confession of faith that was needed. But what we see in the book of Acts, what we see in the life of this Ethiopian man and in Philip's proclamation is that there is heart change going on. This man wants to be obedient. He's hungry for more of God. And so it says that he commanded the chariot to stop. They went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And here's where things get weird again. When they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. That sounds like Elijah. He's just gone. And the eunuch saw him no more. And this is where I just find it interesting. He doesn't freak out. He's not looking around. He's not trying to like peek behind trees or anything. It says he went on his way rejoicing. He's found Jesus. It's not about Philip anymore. He's got Jesus. It doesn't matter that Philip is just gone. Now he's got hope in Christ. And so he goes on his way. Again, the result of the gospel taking root in someone's life is to rejoice. You've been saved. You've been rescued from darkness into light. And it says, Philip found himself at Azotas. And as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. The next time we'll really see Philip is in Acts 21. He's been, been in Caesarea doing faithful ministry for quite a while. He's raised a family. His family's engaged in ministry. And Philip's legacy is one that continues to live a life on mission for Christ. And so if you and I want to live a life on purpose, what do we need to do? Well, I've got three things very quickly that I think will help us engage in mission and live intentionally. And if you checked, if you checked kids in back here this morning, you saw these words that are your next three blanks hanging above the little computer stations back there. First, we need to know that God has sent you. If you want to live a life on purpose, you need to understand you have been commissioned into gospel ministry. That doesn't mean you have to go to seminary. That doesn't mean you have to get up on a stage and preach. That means God has called you where you are to represent Jesus and be his light. God has sent you. Secondly, we need to live and know that, that or we need to love Jesus and make him known. If you're going to live a life on purpose, you need to love Jesus. You spend time with Jesus, just like Philip responds in obedience and has margin in his life to hear God and respond in obedience. And in the midst of hardship, give the gospel away because his love for Christ is that deep that even though he's, a, he's having to leave his home and where he's comfortable, he still wants to make Jesus known. We need to love Jesus and make him known. And so for some of us, that might mean you need to get rid of some things that are, that are vying for your heart and your affections. That might mean you need to turn off or delete Facebook from your phone. That might mean, you know what? Maybe you disconnect your cable. Maybe you say no to some good things so you can love Jesus and spend time with him. So that you can hear his leadership. You can hear his word and know how he wants you to engage and live on purpose. And finally, we need to serve people well. Church needs to be less about judging the world and more about how can we engage culture and just serve people. 
We have a God who didn't just sit in judgment, but came and served and did what we couldn't do. He lived the life we couldn't live. He died the death we deserved to die. We need to go out and we need to serve people. Engage with those around us rather than just judging people who are lost for acting like they're lost. Love them well. Engage with them. Connect with them. And then like Philip, pivot to the gospel and let Jesus and his spirit do the work. You just be his witness. Live a life on purpose. The last verse I want to read to you is just, again, we've talked about it a lot, but Acts 1.8, Jesus' parting command to the apostles, and I believe what he places and wants us as Redemption Church, it's our turn. In 2018, today's July 1st, that's what we've got. We've got today. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Who is God calling you to? How are you giving away the gospel? How are you responding in love to the truth that Jesus laid his life down for you and looking to make that known as you go? That's my charge for us this morning, church. As we seek to live a life on purpose and we look at Philip's life, he made Jesus known. Let's take today and follow that example.